Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I'm thrilled once again to be joined by my co-host, Wilkie Law. Will, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you for asking. And we are delighted to have Sarah Frost on the podcast tonight. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great. Oh, and I should have said this before, but it's actually forced. Is it? Yeah, so all the kids do that, too. Pretty oh. much everyone. Okay. You can actually switch that O and the R. Oh, is it really? Did I yep. <laughs> did I miss? I did. Oh man, I'm sorry. No, no worries. I, I people do it so often. I, I almost don't even notice until I hear it said out loud. Oh, oh, my bad. <laughs> no, and like I have it, like I have it written. I have it written on my sheet, like F O R S T, and I still said it wrong. Yeah, uh, like at, at my most recent school, the office staff called me Miss Frost for like the first year. So, <laughs> oh wow, you know, it's fine. I, I pick my battles. Yeah, I I feel you there. My my last name is Krieger, but it technically not even technically it should be pronounced Kruger, but it's it's Krieger. And I've I've asked my grandma on many occasions why we do it that way, and she never she doesn't know, but. I still have people that call me by their own name, so it's I feel you on that. So my 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 apologies for doing that. No problem. Awesome. So Will, do you want to just kind of give her the rundown on what we're trying to do with our podcast? All right. Um, well, first, thank you again for for taking this time out to uh, being here with us. Um, our our goal and our mission for the podcast is simply to bring unique voices, the unique voices of education to the masses. Uh, for so long, what people get is what's on the news, which typically is most of the time is not good, um, or what they pick up through social media, which is, like we all know, your highlight reel. Uh, and we want you know to be able to offer teachers and educators and stakeholders an opportunity to hear the voices of, of, of education and educators as a whole. So that's what we're going with the podcast. Awesome. All right. So, so to get it started, Sarah, could you just first uh, tell us about your favorite teacher growing up and why that person was your favorite teacher? Yeah, sure. Well, I can try. I always hear people tell these like really touching stories of their of their favorite teacher and like how he or she inspired them to become a teacher. I didn't really have that experience. I went to a Catholic school, not like a not like a good private school, just like with like huge classes, like really old textbooks. And it was really like just kind of bored most of the, most of the time. So I, I didn't really have that experience. But I, I do remember my second grade teacher, Mrs. Corbett. Uh, and I liked that she was really strict because the other students kind of annoyed me. Which is just funny because as a teacher, I'm not strict at all. Uh, not in that like traditional sense. But we had this class play uh which I think was supposed to be more of like a reader's theater, but she gave me the lead part, even though I was like super shy. And that was just kind of a turning point uh, for me in terms of my self-confidence. So I did appreciate that. Awesome. That's, you know, so it was like that Catholic school that you saw like in the movies with like the textbook that's like 30 years old. Yeah. I mean, so our, our textbooks, I mean, I was born in 1990, and our textbooks while I was in, like, grade school and middle school still had the USSR. Like, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just funny because you think of it as being, you know, like, oh, and I'm a public school teacher, but it's like, it, that private school experience was not, like, my parents should have just sent me to the local public school, and I would have gotten a better education, but. 
I, oh, gosh, that's so funny that you say like the textbooks still have the USSR. Oh, that's that's bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they were trying their best, but you know, like thirty every year, I had thirty five kids in the class. I don't know if differentiation just wasn't a thing back then, but it, it was pretty dull. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So. We were talking a little bit before the podcast about how you you are not in the classroom this year after having taught four years. So do you want to kind of work backwards from what you're doing now and kind of go through what your teaching experience was? Sure. So um, currently I run my Teachers Pay Teachers store full-time, the designer teacher, and then I also run a subscription box called Teacher Care Crate. Um, But prior to that, I was a teacher for four years, kindergarten through fourth grade special education uh, in Chicago public schools. Awesome. And and did you was teaching the field you kind of always wanted to go in or how did you how did you get into the teaching field, I guess, is the question I'm trying to ask. No, not, yeah, not at all. Like I said, I didn't have like super positive experience with teachers, and it's not. I, I often hear a lot of other teachers saying, oh, "Oh, like everyone in their family is a teacher," which again was not my experience. Um, when I worked, like during high school and college, I worked in volunteers with kids a lot, um, but I, I never really thought seriously about becoming a teacher. And then my major was actually interdisciplinary object design in college, uh, so. As I started to think about what I wanted to do after college, I realized I didn't really want to just go work for, like, Black & Decker or wherever, which is, like, what most of my um, classmates would be doing. Like, what we learned how to do was to design objects. And I did love design, but I wanted to do something where I could help people every day in, like, a really concrete way. Um, so as I was, like, looking into, into options, I ended up uh, applying for Teach for America, Um and I did that two-year training and teaching in, in Chicago, and then I stayed and, and continued to teach here. Awesome. Awesome. And how was the Teach for America experience? Um, for me, it did get me into teaching, so I'm, um, I'm definitely grateful for that. And most of the people I interacted with there um, were really positive and, and had good intentions, but I, I don't think I was fully prepared. Um, I was getting my certification as I was teaching, so that was a really overwhelming first year experience, especially. Yeah, I mean, after after five years of college for me and student teaching, like I wasn't prepared my first year. Right, and I think it's it's one of those things that. I think for most people, their their first year is going to be tough, regardless. But um, you know, so I was teaching in a in a Title One school, which is um, where I continue to teach at Title One schools. But I mean, really, no resources, and then not not having that background, it, it, it was challenging. But uh, you know, I mean, I did grow to love it, and I can't. I can't say that I wish I hadn't done it because I don't, you know, if I could have done it over, then, you know, I would have been an education major and done that. Um, but it was sort of too late at the point that I was looking into it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cause on this particular conversation, we've got one person that was teach for America. I was like the traditional route and Wilkie was, did the alternative route. So it's, we, we cover all the kind of landscapes of how you can get into the classroom. training, specialized training, we still struggle the first year. 
Right. You know, and, I, and especially and especially in Title One schools, that's a totally different thing. There's really no way to prepare you for a lack of resources. Right. They can't teach. They can't teach you everything. And even I mean, and I got my certification at National Lewis University, and I still didn't really feel like what I was learning there was particularly applicable in my classroom. Because especially for special education, you get your certification for uh, K through age 21. You know, that's not going to be the specifics of phonics or division or anything like that. It's more general. You got a certificate uh-huh. that was K through 21. At least in Illinois, that's what the standard special education certificate is for special education, yeah. Wow. I d- yeah, that's a, it's a learning behavior specialist is, this, is the certification. So you really don't learn much of that content at all. The idea is that you're the specialist on the learning behavior, and then the gen ed teacher is a specialist for the content. Oh, so what was that experience wow. of like working in a classroom with another teacher, like, did you, did you ever do any real content teaching? Yeah, so I, I, I did admit, um, so I know the terminology is different, different places, but in, I've worked at two different schools and both schools, the push was really for inclusion for, uh, and, and, and legally that's how it should be that students are in the general education classroom as much as possible. So I was doing some of that coaching, co-teaching and then I also was a resource teacher where students who couldn't get their needs met in the gen ed classroom would get pulled out for specialized services with me so I was really only teaching solo for reading uh occasionally math but for most of the subjects I was we would call it push in um I would be in there co-teaching with the gen ed teacher wow yeah I'm so you you still got my mind blown with the k to 21 certification (laughs) Well, it is crazy because you can kind of be put anywhere. Um, I'm thankful both my jobs, I was K through four because that's kind of, that's the age range I like. But even that's a wide range. I mean, in the same day, I'd be working with kindergarten students and fourth grade students, which obviously is totally different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, gosh, I, I, we could just slide into the, right into the podcast, <laughs> but there's a couple things I want to ask you. So we'll, well, I'm sure we'll come back to that. So just a few phrases Actually, you know what? We're going to skip the phrases. We're going to keep going on the conversation. So, All right. so based on on your experience, you know, from Teach for America, working in Chicago public schools in Title One, what do you think is the state of education right now? Well, that's a tough one. I don't know if you can hear me sighing. It's like I don't, I, I, I don't want to be totally negative because I don't think that public education is like quote unquote failing the way that politicians like to say. I mean, being in public schools, I see a lot of really cool things happening. Um, but also the schools that I've worked at have just been so under-resourced. It's hard to be too positive when you literally don't have copy paper. Last year, we didn't we didn't have textbooks. We didn't have copy paper. I got a little, uh, <laughs> with, my, with my principal, I got a little snippy. It's like, what are we supposed to be doing here? Like, what, what are we supposed to be using, even theoretically? Uh so I really think we need to double down on our investment in public schools. I mean, school funding being based on property taxes is absurd. I think it's a very direct way of saying that rich kids deserve a better education than poor ones. Uh, so that's, I mean, there's, there's so many different issues, but I think that's a really central problem. Yeah, and didn't didn't I see that that Chance the Rapper donated like 
a million dollars last year to Chicago Public Schools because he found out they were so under-resourced? Yes, uh, that was the case, which is, I mean, it's I mean, it's awesome of him. It's really sad that that's where we need to get money. Uh, yeah, I mean, just not, not even the very basics are covered. So... I guess then my question would be to follow up. Do they still have the same expectations of like content knowledge, test scores and those kind of things, even though that's the reality of where you teach? Yes. I mean, that's, that's the short answer. Chicago public schools has this rating system and, uh, like the best schools or what they consider the best schools are a one plus school. And then the worst, I don't even know if it goes down to a three. I think it does. Um, but that rating is very public. And so, um, it's constantly, you know, test scores are a big part of that, but some other things as well. So principals are always like obsessed with getting, getting to the next rating. Yeah. I wish, I wish I could say it was different in Wisconsin, but it's, it's the same here. Do you teach in Milwaukee or? No, I teach in like uh, in the northwest part about 45 minutes from Minneapolis, St. Paul. Okay. So, but. but I say that like I know the area, but I don't. I'm not from the Midwest. I'm just like, uh-huh. Let me name the one city of so, Wisconsin I know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so if you, if you take 94 for about five hours out of Chicago, you would get to where I live. All right. So. So, yeah, but, I mean, Will, do you want to expand a little bit about, you know, what you've seen in terms of that? Well, I think I think you hit it on the head, Sarah, when you talked about school funding uh, based on um, property taxes as a joke. Um, I grew up in inner-city Houston. Um, most of the people that I grew up with migrated away from that area. So quite naturally right now, that community, those communities around those schools are primarily older individuals. There's no youth because most of the youth that were raising children wanted to move out of the neighborhood because of the, the high crime, you know, all the issues that's going on in the inner city. So they wanted to migrate out of it. So quite naturally, a lot of those property taxes are not being paid. The property value is extremely low. Therefore, there are, I think, 10 schools right now in the inner city in Houston that are considering to close for next year because of that very reason. But these are schools who have produced some of the greatest thinkers and minds in the city, in the state, and in the country. But because of the, that one single thing, the funding is not there to support those schools. And many of those schools have just undergone multi-million dollar renovations through budget, you know, bond reform, and they're being closed down. Um, you know, you had, you think about, go ahead. I was going to say, we had similar issues here with, uh, a few years ago, the mayor closed 50 schools. Um, wow. it was, you know, disproportionately, um, you know, with schools with kids of color. And I mean, that seems like it, it that's just how it goes. But I mean, that, you know, the city really took a hit with that. I mean, 50 schools. Oh, man. Uh-huh. That's, that's, Wow. So then where did where did those kids did they get rezoned or have to be bussed out to different schools? Yeah, so they you know, they would try to send them to what they would call welcoming schools, but 
you know, it causes a lot of problems because it would be, you know, they're crossing gang lines and it's also, it's, you know, those schools can be the center of the community and then you get rid of that and it's kind of, that's just gone. Wow. So I guess in, in, in that sense, when you're in that kind of school, how do you, how do you balance, you you know, the needs of what, you know, what your kids really need versus the academic expectations that they put on you? Uh, well, I say as a special education teacher, that's, it, that could be both easier and more difficult. What I liked about being a special education teacher is I really got to focus in on not, not just a couple kids. I mean, I, my caseload was normally between 15 and 20, but I would just have a couple kids in each class I was working with. So I did feel I had a little more license to sort of differentiate and work with them on on what they needed versus just what the standards were for that grade. So for me, with the age that I was working with, the biggest goal was usually just getting them to taking them from non-readers to being readers. And so that was something like really concrete. I felt that I was able to, to do with them. Right. Right. It's just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the, you know, what those kids are going through. I mean, was there a lot of like, I guess, behavioral issues when they closed all those schools, when those kids had to go to different ones? of it to be honest so that was for my first two years I was working on the far south side uh, which was more where a lot of those schools were closed but then for the last two years I've been working on the north side which is a little farther from that still a title one school but um, not kind of in that same area where the schools were closed yeah I just yeah, Illinois sounds like they've got some crazy things going on between closing 50 schools and having a K-21 license. I'm not sounding too negative because there are a lot of positive things going on, and there really are some positive things about Chicago public schools. Like, we have a super strong teacher union, teachers union, which is something, you know, we're seeing across the country. These states without these strong teachers unions are really getting, you know, kind of walked all over. Um, so, so I will say that for CPS. Right. Right. Anything to add, Will, on that on that conversation topic? No, not at all. Awesome. I agree one hundred percent. We need to invest more in education. And not just buying computers or buying technology or you know, invest the time and the energy that it's gonna to take to build the teachers the teaching force to make sure that they're properly prepared to to, to deal with what you know, what they're faced with, with you know, within the public school. Yeah, I agree. All right. So, Sarah, I was, you know, scrolling through your Instagram, which I don't want it to sound creepy, but I was scrolling <laughs> through your Instagram. You're preparing. It was, it was preparation. Yeah. And, and I really, I really appreciated on a bunch of your posts that you had opened up about, you know, having anxiety. So I was kind of hoping you could talk about, you know, how that affected you as a teacher. separate who I am from anxiety like that is it's just it's part of who I am and, and I'm okay with that um and I think as, as a teacher like the positive side is that it does make you determined to do the very best that you can um for me like anxiety can kind of manifest in this 
sort of heightened sense of urgency, which I think can be a positive. Like, uh, my students have to learn how to read. I have to create the very best environment I can. Uh, but then the flip side for that is that you can't sustain that sense of urgency all the time without having a breakdown. Uh, and that t- took me a while to learn. You just, you can't do it. If you feel every detail is so important and so necessary, it becomes really hard just to stop and take any time for yourself. And did you, I mean, did you struggle with, you know, like taking too much on? Cause I, I know as a, as a beginning teacher, you know, middle teacher, I, I struggled with taking too much on. So I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, like when, was there a specific time that like the breakdowns would come if you were working too hard? I was pretty much in a constant state of panic because, uh, like I said, I was I was getting my certification as I was um, as I was teaching. So I had grad school three nights a week for three hours, and so I was commuting from school right to grad school. And then I I would get home till like ten o'clock, and then I'd be waking up the next morning, you know, at five thirty to take the train. I mean, it, looking back, I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know how I did it. Uh, but I think when when it would get really bad would be like you said where you're you just keep taking more and more on and I would kind of let myself get built into this frenzy of like I can't stop I have to do it like I don't have time for anything else um, and and that would be the point where I you know kind of lose it <laughs> right and and do you notice that um, I mean is there a stigma I mean because I know it's just you know, societally, it, it seems like anxiety disorders of whichever kind kind of have a stigma. But, I mean, do you think there's a lot of teachers out there that are going through that? Um, well, I know for sure there are a lot of teachers that uh, have anxiety disorders because so many people have contacted me when I started talking about it a little more openly. Um I think people kind of joke around a lot, like, oh, I'm having a mental breakdown or, like, I'm having a panic attack. And sometimes I'm like, are you though? Like, you know, I, I can't, people say these things, but it's hard to tell how much of it is, you know, an actual disorder or not. Um, I, I mean, I haven't had, I think there is a stigma, but I haven't had, I don't, I mean, I haven't had anyone treat me badly because of that. Like at the times that I've, I have told some of my co-teachers, when I've got to know them better just as you know to kind of help our relationship and help them understand where I'm coming from and often people are surprised uh which is funny I don't know if people have kind of just this idea of how someone with anxiety is I mean I guess I would say I'm like pretty high functioning um which I think as a teacher you would have to be yeah I mean it's I, I don't know how many times I myself have said or I've heard people say I'm having a mental breakdown and all, and all those things. And it it really makes me kind of think back to, you know, those times when I've said it, what was going on with me. And I, I feel like I, I've had bouts of anxiety, but not the consistent, um, you know, everyday gnawing. So did it were there any other ways that it impacted your teaching besides just really trying to make you a high-functioning person? I think that it impacted me. Is that the question? Yeah. I mean, other than, you know, wanting to, like, really be immersed in the details, did it did it affect you at all any other ways? Yeah. I mean, one thing that was difficult for me 
was working with with co-teachers so much of the time as teaching inclusion was having to kind of deal with a lot of other people's personalities. Like children for me are one thing, but having to work with adults, I would have kind of a lot of social anxiety around that of like, uh, just, you know, worrying, but taken to a degree where it starts to impact your performance, I guess, where it's sort of like, is this person mad at me? Like, why are they saying this? What do they mean by this? And like taking things, I, I felt like I would take things very personally and from my, my administration as well. Um, and there can kind of be this drama at school, some schools sometimes. And that by the, by the end of my last year, that was, that was getting to be really difficult for me dealing with all those, those different personalities. It, it's sort of hard for me to brush that off. It's hard for me to just say, Oh, well, I don't care. It doesn't matter what they think of me. Right. Right. And I think that's, I think that's a feeling that a lot of teachers go through in general when stuff is said to them, they, they take it really hard or they, they question, you know, why, why a person is saying something. So I, I don't think you're alone in that, but so how did you, you know, what were some of the ways you kind of dealt with it and, and you grew? Cause I, I know with your teacher care craze, um, I'm assuming that part of that kind of came out of, you know, the struggles you had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, well, I do take medication for generalized anxiety disorder, and that's something I try to be upfront about that too. Because even though I don't think I don't feel too stigmatized about having an anxiety disorder, I do sometimes think people have this kind of stigma about medication, um, and I just like to be upfront about that because I really don't think there's any shame in that. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. And then I take a different medication for panic attacks. Um, but medication alone really isn't enough. Like I definitely had to make lifestyle changes as well. Um, when I first started seeing a therapist, like regularly last school year, uh, she really convinced me that like, I need to slow down and take care of myself because I was getting into that kind of frenzy, like where I wasn't doing anything but working. Um, and she really, you know, she, she, she started by giving me homework. Well, you need to do nothing twice a week for 10 minutes. Um, and at the time, just that was really difficult for me. It was like, well, I don't, I don't have 10 minutes. Um, which of course, I mean, you have, you have to make that time. But then as, as I kind of got better at it, I, one thing I tried to do was take a break when I got home from school, which sounds really simple, but what I was, I was staying late at school and then I was coming home and just continuing to work until I went to sleep. Uh, which I think is something a lot of teachers do, um, but just kind of f- forcing myself to take a break um, and then having certain things built into my routine. Like I started going to a um, yoga class on Friday nights and I would do that every week um, and I'd take a bath on Sunday nights. Like just building these things into my routine so that it didn't become, so it felt like something, this is, um, this is, this is planned in, I don't have to feel like I'm doing something wrong by taking this time for myself. So could you then talk a little bit about what, uh, what the teacher care create is and, you know, how, how you decided to, to start that? Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, that sort of taking time for myself, uh, was really important for me in terms of dealing with my anxiety. Um, and just kind of the general idea of self-care is something I've been promoting for a while through the designer teacher. Um, and then this year, I have to give credit to my friend Tamara of Mrs. Russell's room. She actually gave me the idea to do like a, a self-care subscription box for teachers. Um, and once she planted this idea, I was like, I don't know if it's possible, you know, but I 
because I had that background in object design, I sort of just kept thinking about it. Um, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I said, you know, I'll just give it a try. I'll see if there's an interest in it. Um, so I started in January of this year, which is like a limited edition box. And it sold out in an hour. Uh, wow. So I was like, all right, wow. I think, you know. I, I, I have a thing here, so I've been keeping at it and growing it each month, um, and it's really it's really gratifying to hear from teachers that it's something that really just helps them to make time for themselves each month, that it's a, it's a good reminder, and it's been fun for me to get back to kind of those object design groups. What was in the initial limited edition box? ways of sourcing and different contacts and stuff but for that first box it was pretty it was pretty basic I had made bracelets that said breathe on them as like just a, a reminder there was I made bath bombs um I I've never attempted to make those myself now I buy those from other people who know what they're doing but that first time I made them myself what what else is in the first box oh I had a um an art print um i'm looking it up on my wall it says be gentle with yourself you're doing the best you can and i know there were five things oh there was like organic chocolate there was a stress relief tea um that might have been it i felt each box has like kind of gotten better as i've I've worked out these things and i'm able to provide more value as you as you scale up you know it's easier to get things wholesale when you're you know ordering a hundred instead of 25. Right. Right. And how many, how many subscriptions do you have right now? It kind of, it hovers around 125, you know, so I lose some each month and I, and I gain some each month. Um, but it's about, it's, a, I haven't really been making growth. I didn't make growth from May to June cause I had a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm canceling over the summer, but I'll start back up during the school year. Right. Right. So what was what what's been in the most recent box? So I'm just getting ready to send out um, the June crate. They go out on the 15th of each month. Um, so this I've been starting doing themes, which has been kind of fun. So this one has a summer theme. So this one has um, I work. I, I, one thing I love to do is work with um, other teachers that are makers that have Etsy shops and things like that. So there's another teacher. um who has an Etsy shop and she made these koozies that say teacher on break. Um, so people can take that to the, to the beach or whatever. And then there is like a citrus soap. There is, um, like a, a shower steamer. There's a, a tote bag, which, um, Chelsea from the hipster art teacher designed. There's, I designed the print this month, which, uh, is a summer bucket list of different, like, uh, relaxing activities uh, teachers can do over the summer. And then I have these, like, tropical temporary tattoos, which are really fun, like uh, flamingos and pineapples, things like that. That's awesome. And and you've been getting good – and you said you've been getting good feedback from the teachers? Yeah. I mean, you know, they people – keep ordering which is good and I love seeing like one of my favorite things each month is uh when people start getting their crates and they take pictures or they'll let me know what their favorite things are um I really like when people send it to someone else as a gift um and you know I hear from from that person oh they really love their gift you know it really meant a lot to them um so I don't know if it's something 
that I'll, I'll keep doing forever or not because it is a lot of work doing like a physical product versus teachers to teachers. Um, but it's, a, it's something I'm enjoying for now. And it's like a labor of love. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not, I mean, the bulk of my income, because this is, you know, I'm, I'm not teaching right now, is definitely from teachers to teachers. Um, but teacher care crate, it, I, it's been kind of a way, um, you know, to, to give back a little bit and sort of practice what I preach in terms of, um, you know, how important I think self-care is for teachers in order not to burn out. Right. And I think, you know, with, with the self-care thing, I think you said the biggest thing is just that, you know, we can so easily burn out. And, um, you know, I, I taught seven years before I took the year off. And, and when I came back to the classroom this year, Wilkie and I were talking and he's like, you're a better teacher after a year off than I was, you know, the year prior to me, um, taking that year off because I just, I had, taking care of myself, I had let go of a lot of things I was holding on to. So, you know, what, you know, what's maybe some of the best advice you would give teachers on, you know, how, how to best take care of themselves? You know, where would you start? Hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to think like it took for me, honestly, having this, I got to give another shout out to my therapist. Like, she had to really intervene and just tell me, like, you are literally killing yourself with the amount of work you're doing. Like, at the time, you know, she was like, you're 26 years old, you're not enjoying your life, and you need to make a change. Um, so I try to be sort of that clear with people, um, that it's not a matter of, I mean, something I say all the time is self-care is not selfish. You, you have to switch from that mindset of, I'm being a bad person. I don't care about my kids if I do anything for myself because you're just not going to last. So I'd say to try to shift that mindset of when I'm taking care of myself, I actually am being a good teacher. And in the long run, it's going to help my students. Right. Right. I think that's, I think that's good advice for, uh, for any teacher out there on the self care side. And And the thing about it too is, there's so many different places you could go with it. I mean, I know you talked about yoga and taking a bath and, you know, there's meditation, there's working out. There's so many different options that everybody should be able to find something that they can do to really invest a little time back in themselves. Yes, for sure. I'm actually, uh, later this month, I'm giving a presentation on activism as self-care. So I think there can be, you know, it, it doesn't all have to be, yeah, like doing yoga and taking a bath, but it's about things that like fill fill you up and make you feel purposeful um, and to not kind of have this helpless feeling, I guess. And the reality of it is that you can't feel anyone else from an empty receptacle. Absolutely. So think about teacher self-care. As much as we pour out on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, class by class, um, if we're not replenishing ourselves, and that was one of the first conversations that Kyle and I started having when we, were, when we were teamed up, is that you're responsible for what you put in yourself so that you can have something to give back to your students. Yes. Yeah. And if you're constantly putting out, putting out, putting out, that anxiety of, hey, I'm guilty, I don't have anything else, it builds and compounds with the anxiety of what you're already doing, hurry up, get it done right now, right now. You know, I need it quick, fast, and in a hurry. It compounds it even more 
Because you're like, I don't have anything else to give. Yes. And if you're not taking that time to just kind of take a pause, you know, my thing first started, when I first started, it was about reading. Let me steal away a couple of, a couple of minutes a day to where I can just sit down and I can just fill myself up with some, the words of someone else, another mentor, to say something empowering and encouraging for myself. And it makes all the difference in the world because then it gives you that much more to give back out to your students and get them involved in that process. And it teaches them also how they can deal with things. Totally agree. It's you can model that to your students. Like, okay, I need, you know, I need. Why don't we all take a couple deep breaths as a class now? Or, you know, I'm feeling stressed out by this. So, what can we do? Because um, that was something I did feel I was able to connect with some of my students who had uh, who had anxiety as well, and just kind of ways to to model those coping strategies. Mm-hmm. So, I'm I'm. I was going to ask you a question coming up on, you know, the way you speak on social issues and activism. Um, so I, I just am going to roll that question into wh- what is activism as self-care? Because I think that's a really interesting concept. So could you talk a little bit about um, your role in activism and also, you know, why you say activism can be self-care? Sure. So um on social media, particularly, which I'm, I'm sure you saw, I try to speak out on a number of different social issues. There's um, Black Lives Matter I'm particularly passionate about, um, but also women's rights issues and, and things related to education. Um, so I was actually just working on this presentation today. The reason I think activism can be self-care is because when we're teachers working in schools, particularly maybe schools that have a lot of problems, it can feel really frustrating on a day-in-day basis. Um, you know, on those days where it's, I, I, I don't have supplies, and you know, my, my students aren't listening, or I don't feel I'm able to reach them. And I know that that is also part of this larger, these larger societal issues that my students are facing. It can actually be self-care to do some of that outside activism because it's a way for you not to feel helpless, a way for you to feel like you're actually doing something. Because it, it became it, it became hard for me sort of to face my students knowing, you know, I'm a white woman, woman and for all, all of my students, for students of color, to know the kind of things that they were facing every day. Um, and it felt like I needed to be doing something more than just what I was doing in the classroom. Yeah, that's a a great perspective. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way. But, you know, there's so much of what we hear from students and, you know, the fact that Wilkie and I both taught in, you know, um, Houston, you know, where primarily our kids were Hispanic and the rest were African-American. So many of them feel, you know, I don't want to say so many, but many of them feel helpless, you know, that they're not empowered and. I didn't think that as a teacher you could feel that same way and that, you know, really that activism could be that place where you could feel empowered rather than just being helpless. I think that's a really, I think that's a really good perspective on it. It's kind of a strange way to think about it because it is, or maybe it, maybe it seems counterintuitive because it's thinking, well, if I'm going to practice self-care, I need to be doing less, not taking more on. Um, but at least for me, I would be so passionate about these issues that, it, it would really be bothering me not to do something. And by doing something, that that was kind of 
an outlet for me. Um, like for, for example, uh, when I first started getting involved with black lives matter, I would, I attend protests and that sort of thing. But I also thought, well, maybe there's something I need more I could do my platform. Um, so I designed these t-shirts that say teachers believe black lives matter. Um, and that's been really cool to see that I've been, I've been signed up for a couple of years now and all the proceeds go um, to the Black Lives Matter organization or the ACLU. Um, so that was a way I was able to raise thousands of dollars for these organizations. And so, I mean, really the credit should go to the people who, who actually are, are buying them and in turn donating that money. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a little boost. I mean, it's not why I'm doing it, but it is at the same time you think, well, even if I feel frustrated today at school and maybe I don't feel like I've accomplished something, well, I, I, I know that I did this other thing and that I'm, I'm helping in some way. So we, we definitely want to be respectful of your time this evening. So we'll kind of wrap up the question. So these last few that we're going to ask you are just, um, you can answer them as a, a teacher or just in general. So uh, the first one is, what was the best advice you've ever been given? having my therapist kind of intervene for me and tell me that I, I needed to make a change. Um, I, I do think that was, that was solid advice that kind of changed my life. Right. Right. Okay. What advice would you offer to a teacher who was struggling? I guess this kind of goes along with what I was saying before, but I'd say first off to cut yourself some slack and then to prioritize because you're not going to be able to do everything, especially if you're already struggling. Um, you know, like teaching kids how to read is more important than having a themed classroom. Your relationships with kids are more important than test scores. Um, and then ask for help. Once you've decided on those important things, get the help you need, whether it's professional development or a mentor teacher or a book. The best book you've read in the last 12 months. I'm going to go with uh, Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Have you read that one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you guys laughing? Um, she, she's, on, she's, on, she's on my vision board for someone who I want to meet and have a okay. conversation with. And uh, I think we're both, Child and I both are pretty avid readers of, of her work. Yeah. yeah, I read it, I guess, maybe in, in January. I mean, I think it's a really timely read. And for me, uh, I mean, uh, really important for, for me to read, I think, in terms of, like, dealing with differences. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. so I definitely recommend right, that, Breathing yeah. the Wilderness. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. And I, I, I love the audio because she reads the audio books. So I, I primarily oh. listen to the audio books, but I love – especially when an audio book is read by the author and she reads it. So it was just, it's actually kind of like you're just having a conversation with her. That's really nice too. That's cool. I might, I read it. I read the physical book, but if I read it again, I kind of help people say the audio book is good. So I might go, go that route. Okay. Proudest accomplishment to date. Um, I'm going to say teaching one of my students to read. I mean, I've taught, multiple students read, but I'm thinking of one particular student who came to me in third grade as a non-reader. I worked with her for two years, um, and, you know, she'd gone so long with, with not, with not learning how to read, and she was a really bright kid, um, 
and it was just really, it was, it was an honor to be able to work with her to accomplish that and watch her become more confident through that. Awesome. Awesome. So like we said, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to come on with us tonight. So before we, before we ask you the last question and, and get you out of here, if people want to connect with you or find out what's in the, in the crate, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, if they're interested in the crate, it's teachercarecrate.com is where they can find out more about it and subscribe. Um, my main website is thedesignerteacher.com, and then I'm the designer teacher on everything, Facebook, Instagram. And my Teachers Pay Teachers store is the designer teacher as well. Awesome. We'll make sure to link those up. So like we said, we really appreciate you coming on. So the the final question we have for you tonight is what do you want your legacy to be? I I can't actually really imagine that I will be someone who, who has a lasting legacy, to be honest. And I don't mean that in like a negative way or self-depreciating necessarily, but I feel like my work for right now is to make students' lives a little better and teachers' jobs a little easier, um, and I'm content with that right now. That's that's fantastic. So, and and if you know if that's the legacy that we all could leave as teachers, I think we would all be doing pretty well. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> awesome. Well. Once again, uh, Sarah, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and giving us some of your time. Thanks so much for having me.